everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Consumers are smart. Consumers know when something is super forced and inauthentic. And at the end of the day, the whole point of working with influencers is that you're co-creating a narrative. You're supposed to be harnessing the personality and the creativity that's unique to each person. And by forcing them to kind of fit in this tightly defined box that is so clearly branded, that just leads to poor performing content. Ask and you shall receive. We did a survey of our audience a few months back, and the number one requested topic was influencer marketing. And for good reason. Influencer marketing has infiltrated every industry and has the ability to drive large ROI if done correctly. But many new or smaller brands are wondering if they can take part in this marketing channel. And the answer is yes. Eric Lamb is the co-founder of Aspire IQ, and he is here to explain how the industry has become democratized and any brand can take part in it as long as they go about it the right way. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Eric gets into all of that and more, including why he bet big on the idea of influencers when it was still a radical idea used mostly by large companies with large celebrities. Today, Eric says there are certain mistakes that many companies are making when it comes to working with influencers, and he details exactly how you should go about measuring the ROI from your influencer strategy. Plus, Eric explains why he thinks platforms like TikTok are undervalued, and he predicts the future of how the world of influencer marketing will grow. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. Before we get into the episode, I would love it if you could hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review. I really want to know what you think and hear how we're doing. All right, on to the interview. Welcome to the Up Next in Commerce podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at mission.org. Today, we're talking all things influencers with the co-founder of Aspire IQ, Eric Lam. Eric, nice to meet you. <laughs> Great to meet you as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. So no pressure, but we did a survey of our audience. And the number one thing that everyone wanted to hear about was influencers. So this is a perfect interview. Fantastic. Well, that, 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 that's really helpful for me to hear, especially for uh, my team working sales. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So tell me a little bit about what is Aspire IQ? We're a platform for brands to build and engage communities of influential people from traditional social media influencers to top customers and brand fans to experts and more. Uh, we actually started back in 2013. And even though it's mainstream now, back then, influencer marketing was a pretty new concept. And frankly, the idea of businesses using Instagram back then in a meaningful way was pretty rare. 
And, you know, of Mm -hmm. course now 93% of brands and kind of based on your survey, it sounds like that's increasing, uh, are using influencer marketing as a core part of their digital and social media strategies. And we're lucky to be partnered with over 300 brands on the platform from some of the biggest names like Samsung to leading e-commerce brands like Glossier and Purple Mattress. Amazing. So tell me a little bit, how is the platform designed? Like if I'm a new customer, what would I experience when I enter the platform and what do I get out of it? Yeah, I think... You know, even back in the day, I think pretty much from the beginning, some of the biggest problems we've tried to solve in influencer marketing have come down to three parts. Uh, Finding the right influencers to work with in terms of creating content and promoting your brand, uh, to managing the complex workflow between your brand and potentially hundreds of influencers in your community, to, you know, analyzing the impact of community, of these influencer communities on your marketing goals. And I think that Where we've really made our bread and butter is that second one, the building workflow. And that's because if if any of uh, your listeners have built influencer marketing programs, and actually in our early days, uh, probably our first two years, we didn't have our own software. So we experienced this ourselves when we were running influencer campaigns for our clients. The The real work that goes into this is all the communication and the cumbersome project management, the data organization, the contracts, the product shipping, the payments, and just keeping track of all this stuff in one place, especially if you're working with more than say 10 influencers at a given time, like that's where the real work is. And so that's where we've really focused on building a platform that can provide meaningful scale to clients building this in a sophisticated way. Um, and I think at this point, we've got, you know, kind of a range of sophistication levels from Fortune 500 companies who have, you know, seven different teams working across different countries with outside agencies in the corporate office to, you know, some of the biggest DTC brands in the world who have kind of built their secret sauce and in influencer marketing and almost need to design this customized system within our platform for how to do influencer marketing. So it's come a long way in terms of the sophistication level that a lot of our clients have had. That's awesome. So since 2013, what kind of shifts in the market have you seen? Because when I think about influencers, like especially back in the day, it's like, if you don't have a a Kardashian, you don't have an influencer. (laughs) And now it seems like way more about like micro influencers who has a trusted audience and people actually buy what they want. Like what kind of things have you seen um, like shifts in the market? Yeah, it's, it's evolved in a lot of different really interesting ways. And I think that's, you're exactly right. I think in the early days, um, well, frankly, in the really early days when we first started, almost no one was doing influencer marketing, which was obviously tough for, for our business because we were trying to go to every brand and convince them to spend even like, you know, a hundred bucks on an influencer. So <laughs> I think like, that, no, was, that was obviously- Out of budget. Yeah, and, and, and I think that was, uh, that was already like pulling teeth. And I think, uh, it, you know, back then, I think the only brands doing this were probably these- emerging e-commerce brands where, you know, they can't compete on traditional advertising. So Instagram had become this place where they discovered, you know, already consumers were coming there to learn about what to buy, what to do, where to go. And that was true, even though, you know, back then Instagram wasn't this kind of commercialized or sponsored place the way it is today. But, you know, even in in our early days, what kept us going is that we talked to so many e-commerce brands and consistently what we heard was the biggest channel they were focusing on was social media and specifically influencer marketing. And then I think, yeah, after a few years, maybe like 2015, 2016, uh, it became the, the industry kind of evolved to what you were talking about, where everybody was trying to work with Kardashians. It was all about working with the biggest fashion bloggers, the biggest celebrities, the bigger, the better. And you're thinking about these vanity metrics, like how many followers someone has or how many likes they have. 
uh, kind of regardless of if they saw meaningful returns on investment. And those were kind of like the mm -hmm. early cowboy days of influencer marketing. And I think because of a lot of the mainstream brands got involved there, uh, you started to then see an evolution of how uh, a lot of the DTC, a lot of the e-commerce brands were starting to think about influencer marketing because they, you know, they were kind of getting priced out of these big macro celebrities. So they started honing in on more specialized micro influencers, like you mentioned, who, you know, they might not have as big of a following, but they're a lot more targeted, a lot more focused in the content they created, which meant they were a great <laughs> fit for more personalized experiences, more authentic content uh, in terms of the segments they were trying to reach uh, among their customers. And I think the second thing that was really interesting about the way this evolved is that these same e-commerce brands started using influencers for more than just trying to reach their audiences, like in an advertising way. And they started looking at them as holistic content creators, because when you think about what an influencer is, they're kind of like this studio photographer model all wrapped into one person whose literal job it is to make engaging content for this generation. So uh, these brands started repurposing a lot of their content and using it in all their different channels from paid advertising to their e-commerce website to email marketing and more because content became this king of everything they wanted to do across digital. And today I think that's kind of even more the case where you're looking at even more long, long tail influencers and even people that aren't considered traditional social media influencers, but are really important to the brands and their strategies from a marketing perspective. So brands might be building programs where they're combining influencers, but they're also combining those with top customers, power users, experts, you know, working professionals who do customer referrals, you know, whichever groups of people have the greatest word of mouth impact on the customers they're trying to look, win over, regardless of if they have a social media following or not. So I think it's a really exciting phase of influencer marketing we're heading into where it's really inclusive and democratized, where brands are kind of looking for these authentic voices, no matter where they come from. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I was just going to say, it feels like now there's so much more opportunity for anyone to have an influencer if you find the right person, whereas before, not so much. But if you're thinking about finding an influencer in your space or finding someone to partner with or using your platform to find some, what kind of metrics would you look at to make sure they're a good fit? Like what should a brand be looking for to be like, ah, that's, this is my perfect person? Yeah, I, I think it, a lot of it comes down to what your what the goals of, uh, you know, this influencer program is. And, and I, but I think at the end of the day, a lot of that comes down to subjective type of qualities. So you know, obviously you can, you can see if they have a big following, you can see if they have, you know, really high engagement rates, but at the end of the day, you want to kind of look at how, what are the, what are people talking about in their comment section? How are, what, what are, what's the type of narrative they're trying to build with their audience? And does that really resonate with the type of nuanced audience segment that you're trying to build with your audiences? Um, Cause that tells you a lot about um, how they're going to co-create this narrative with you. And that's really what we kind of tell people when we give them advice is, you should really be building relationships with these influencers and treat them as kind of a part of your community rather than looking at it as a transaction. I think the, one of the biggest mistakes I see a lot is that, uh, you know, people will look at influencer marketing almost as like buying ad space. And it's really not like buying ad space because content creators are people. Yeah, these are people. <laughs> yeah. These are people yeah. who have like these like nuanced feelings about the content they make, what they feel comfortable with, what's authentic to them. And this is like yeah. their livelihood. Right. And so kind of communicating with that level of empathy is really important. And if you can find people that really match your brand values and are going to be true advocates for you, 
that that really translates into the authenticity, both from what they're saying, but also the kind of content they make. Because, you know, influencer marketing is pretty mature now and audiences can smell inauthenticity from kind of a mile away. So it, mm-hmm. it matters a lot to find people that really believe in your brand. So how do you go about making sure that a relationship is built on your platform and that someone's not just going through and being like, okay, bye, I want this. Like, how do you develop or encourage a relationship to be built before they start working together? Yeah, I, I think it, a lot of times, frankly, sometimes it starts not necessarily with a, kind of a official collaboration or with like an official contract or anything like that. A lot of brands, what they do is they'll do what's called product seeding. And they'll send these gift, there's these gift bags out to influencers or micro influencers and they'll have people try out the products. If they like the products, they'll have them give feedback. They'll invite them to some events. They'll have them be part of some community activities before they really kind of like level them up into, you know, true ambassadors for the brand that have these, you know, more formalized contracts and agreements and payment structures and things like that. And I think, um, you know, obviously not, not all of that is necessary, but it kind of creates this much more organic experience where ambassadors almost like come to you or kind of are built with you rather than just saying to every person, hey, we've got this $10,000 campaign and here you go, who wants the money? And, you know, it's kind of going based on much more of a transactional experience. Um, so that's definitely one way to go. And I think, you know, other ways to go are, are, are influencers who, um, can come to you and kind of uh, are kind of creating more of an inbound experience. So what we see a lot is brands setting up kind of these programs um, and looking for new ambassadors and new influencers to the program. They, you know, a lot of times those might be smaller, but uh, getting people to kind of sign up when they're small and when they have smaller followings is a great way to kind of almost like build this uh, farm system of, of, of kind of like up and coming influencers that are kind of working with you in their early days so that when they become really big and really famous, obviously they've been kind of long-term supporters, long-term advocates to your brand for quite a while. Yeah, that's great. I think I've mentioned a few times in different episodes that I was, I forget who I was listening to where they were discussing influencers and how to pick them, but they said like, you should uh, zero in on the comments and how their followers are actually engaging because if they're engaging in one way where it's just like, oh, that's pretty, like I like that shirt or something, that might not actually be like an influential person you should work with versus someone who's saying, where can I buy that shirt right now? If you see a lot of that in the comments, even if they're small, like they have people waiting to buy whatever they wear. So I thought that was always a good reminder. Yeah, totally. And and I think that, you know, and, and I think that a lot, a lot of times that that comes from some of these smaller influencers, because they're so focused on the type of content that they make, and their audiences really trust them with that messaging. And I think a lot of influencers just understand that when they take these sponsorship deals, they're, they're doing it in a way where they really need to make sure it looks and, and it is the, the fact that the brand, they really care about this brand. They believe in the values, they believe in the product. And I think, you know, audiences are really, uh, are really attuned to that. And, and I think they can, they can pick up on that. Yep. Agree. So in previous episodes, we've had a lot of guests tell us that it's been really hard to accurately measure their are the ROI of an influencer campaign. So a couple of people have tried it or quite a few of them have tried it, but they just didn't know if they got the results or they didn't know like how long until I see results. So what do you advise around like, how do you make sure, you know, to measure things in a way that you can see an ROI or not? And like, when should they expect to see some kind of success? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it is actually a challenge. It's, I think it's because the reason is because I think influencer marketing kind of sits at this unique intersection of brand and performance marketing where it's a little bit of both. And I think if you're looking at it as only one or only the other one, you're almost like undervaluing uh, what you have in your influencer program. We actually have this uh, internal internal marketing strategy team that works with all of our clients and their job is basically to design this type of thing. Like how are you going to measure the overall ROI of your program? Because it's so unique to every client. In terms of brand awareness, obviously that's, that stuff is, is relatively straightforward. Like how many views am I getting? How many video minutes are watched? How much engagement there are? What, what's the audience demographics that I'm trying to reach? Obviously this is an e-commerce podcast. So most people are interested in, you know, how am I generating sales? And mm-hmm. that's where it gets really interesting because like you said, it's not the easiest thing in the world to build the full attribution funnel for influencer marketing. And, you know, why is that? It's because all of this content sits somewhere that isn't pixel. Like it sits not on your own channel and not even on your own Facebook. It sits on the influencers Instagram page or their YouTube and not all the time there's kind of easy ways to, to click out of links. So what we typically do is we build a combination of indirect and direct metrics to give you a sense of how your program is performing. And there's definitely lots of ways to measure direct conversions. Uh, there's link tracking, coupon code redemptions, affiliate links, landing page signups. And typically those are you know, very good ways of seeing directly attributable sales. And especially if you've built kind of this really great long tail of ambassadors who are all doing, like I said, whether you're product seeding them, you're kind of sending them these gift baskets, and you're not necessarily asking for anything, but you're kind of building this, you know, potentially hundreds or thousands of ambassadors who are, you might not have a ton of following, but they're really believe in the product and they're kind of posting about you. You'll start to see a lot of, a lot of return in terms of referrals on that program, uh, just based on kind of. Their, their channels clicking into those links and uh, you know, going to your website and buying things, everything like that. A lot of the times when you're talking about an influencer post, uh, because there's not an easy way to click out of, this, of, of the posts, uh, we tend to kind of look at more indirect measures because a lot of times what happens is, you know, a consumer sees a post, they see the brand, and then they exit the bra- they exit to a browser and they go direct to the website. So what we say is mm-hmm. that, hey, look at the indirect measures like referral sources from social channels, and that includes things like the Instagram shopping and checkout, which Facebook is inve- investing a ton of money into, um, all types of ways of kind of commercializing your, your social channels. And then, of course, like there's the value of the content itself. Uh, which has been really interesting. And like I said, a lot of e-commerce brands are looking at these influencers as content creation vehicles. And so there's obviously the cost that it would have cost to create, you know, potentially hundreds of purpose-built photos and videos. But what's even more is, you know, what's the value of having 10 times the number of assets to personalize Mm -hmm. all these digital customer journeys from your paid ads, your e-commerce, your email marketing. And almost always what we see is our performance marketing clients will have an overall increase in their ROAS but thanks to this kind of ongoing pipeline of content. And I think the last one that's really, that's super interesting, it's been really game changing over the last couple of years is actually using influencer channels themselves as paid ad vehicles. There's actually, you know, obviously there's easy functionality to boost posts that perform well, but there's actually for in channels like Instagram, if an influencer has a business account, there's an option to grant advertiser access to a third party so that you can actually want, run a wide diversity of paid ads using the influencer's content 
where the ads are coming from the influencers channel themselves. And this actually gives marketers almost this infinite number of channels to test on and has been an absolute game changer for brands looking to build more sophisticated paid social strategies. So all those things are kind of like in combination, obviously are kind of this complex web of how do you value the ROI of an influencer? But it's because there's yeah. just so there's this huge diversity of the ways that you could utilize them depending on your marketing strategy. That's great. Yeah, that's a really good summary, especially that last point. I don't think I have heard that or I was not aware that you could leverage their accounts and kind of post from under their accounts. So yeah, that seems pretty game changing. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's little known, but it's become a lot more popularized, I think recently. And obviously, you know, you, you want to make sure that you have a firm agreement with the influencer. And this is, this is something that in our platform, uh, we kind of wrap up in a bow for you to be able to request, but obviously you're using their content, you're getting the right approvals for them from them. So they don't have, you know, their channel advertising to, to, to people or using content that they're not you know comfortable with. But assuming mm-hmm. that they are, it's actually a win-win for both parties because essentially what's happening is as a brand, you're kind of leveraging them as a voice for your brand to kind of new audiences. And for them, they're reaching you know, new audiences themselves in, in a way that can kind of get them more followers and more reach. Yeah, that's great. I could see there being a bit of like making sure that whatever you write is in their voice or is it like pretty transparent that this is a brand takeover of their account? I think it's typically a collaboration and, and a lot of times what okay. we'll advise is that, you know, definitely having the, the influencer kind of sign off on all the language and making sure that they're comfortable with what they're saying, because you don't want yeah, definitely don't want to misrepresent what they're saying. And it is again, a partnership between the brand and the creator. Yep. Got it. All right. So a little story time. First, we'll start with what are some of the biggest missteps that you've seen brands experience when they've tried to set up their own influencer partnerships? Like what are some horror stories that you've uh, heard in the industry? You know, I like failure. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I think it's, I think a couple of common things that I see. And again, they, they, they kind of relate to this idea that, Hey, these influencers are you know ads basically. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and that leads to kind of behaviors, like I said, about not building relationships. I talked about that one already, but I think another one is basically taking too risk averse of an approach in the creative process. Um, I won't kind of name specific brands, but I think especially when you're talking about like the bigger brands in the industry, the Fortune 500 brands, a lot of them struggle with the idea of kind of like merging their influencer strategy with their creative strategy because they typically have this really rigid process of guidelines and brand safety that they they apply usually to kind of twenty five to fifty thousand dollar photo shoots. And they want to apply that same framework to influencers. And they're like, cool, they have to do this set of 20 guidelines. They have to check all these boxes in terms of what they're going to say. They have to say it in this way and then this tone. And at the end of the day, that just doesn't work because people are smart. Consumers are smart. Consumers know when something is super forced and inauthentic. And at the end of the day, the whole point of working with influencers is that you're co-creating a narrative. Like you're supposed to be harnessing personality and the creativity that's unique to each person. And by forcing them to kind of fit in this tightly defined box that is so clearly branded, that just leads to poor performing content. It's kind of defeating the purpose of using influencers in the first place. So I'd say that's, mm-hmm. I would say that's the biggest uh, misstep I tend to see. And it, and, it, and it is typical among, I would say, like the bigger brands in the industry. Got it. So I could see um, brands, especially smaller ones, trying to find of course, untapped influencers. So what industries do you think there are a bunch of influencers that maybe you guys haven't even tapped into? And what's maybe bringing this question about is I just did a recap episode with one of my coworkers around like the first 50 episodes. And we were talking about shoppable 
gaming and Unreal and how like there's influencers in these game worlds and like how shopping's going to be in there soon. And so I was like, oh, it seems like there could be a lot of virtual influencers that maybe aren't tapped. But are there any industries like that where you're like, oh, we're exploring this or we see this being big in the future, but we haven't actually fully gotten it yet? Yeah. Um, well, I would say that the, honestly, even though it's been incredibly, incredibly popularized in the last year or so, I would say TikTok is still wildly undervalued. TikTok has this enormous breadth and depth of not only audiences, but content creators. Because, I mean, I'm 38 years old and I, I, I look at a lot of like parenting TikTok. I look at a lot of, you know, the home decor TikTok. And it's, and, and it's, not, it's so different than I think what people's perceptions are oh, it's just funny videos or teenagers dancing and, and things like that because there's such a diversity of content and audience in, within TikTok that I think only a handful of brands are really taking advantage of. So that's definitely, I would yeah. say, a, a big focus for us uh, going forward is kind of getting, getting in deep with TikTok and making sure that our brands can be successful there. I would say to kind of more to, to specifically your question around industries, I would say a lot of a lot of industries that we've seen that have kind of more emerging, uh, uh, I would say, quote unquote, influencers, not necessarily, you know, traditionally defined influencers are more kind of like professional fields. So, uh, for example, one of my friends uh, uh, from from business school uh, named Trina Spear, she's founded this company, Fig Scrubs. I think they've had the strategy probably for maybe since they're since they were founded, where they've almost created influencers out of nurses and doctors. Where you mm -hmm. know when they first started, there were no nurse influencers or doctor influencers or anything like that. But they started partnering with all these people that could just create really great content, and they might just be people in that professional field, uh, people that you know might have 500 followers but posted really cool content, and they would send them send them product, get them involved, get them bought into the mission and the vision of the brand. And now a lot of those people they have tens of thousands of followers because of the partnership they've done with Figs. And Figs is an incredibly popular brand among the healthcare industry now, and has a really really loyal following across you know up and down nurses and doctors and everything else. That's really cool. Yeah, I think we had figs on our list. I'll have to check with Hillary on that, but I think we had them potentially coming on maybe. So yeah, that's oh, really very cool to cool. hear how they did they're, that. They're, they're, they're great. I, I, I look forward to listening to that one. So how do you onboard new influencers and who are some names of people that I would know? Because even though it's kind of vanity, I'm sure everyone listening is like, well, who are some names that I would know on your platform? <laughs> Yeah. So interestingly, um, we, we don't really take that kind of approach when it comes to influencers because a, a lot of times our, our influencers are, are, are brand driven. So what we try to do is we try to provide a system of record and a platform for our brands to manage all of their influencer programs themselves. So we don't actually do like, it, this is actually an interesting choice we made, I think back in the founding of the company where we, we decided pretty early that we were not going to win based on us having the most influencers or us having kind of like access to talent agencies or communities of people. Cause Frankly, like we were basically four guys who came from either the ga a gaming company or a hedge fund. And so we were not going to win based on who we knew. What we decided to do is we said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to build a platform that has incredible workflow and ability to scale up these influencer programs and have brands build the tools they need to manage them. Those brands will essentially onboard and, uh, essentially almost like onboard the, the influencers onto our platform themselves. And so that's actually played out 
pretty, pretty well where we now have hundreds of thousands of influencers on the platform. And I think in 95% of cases, um, those influencers were brought by some brand that we had on our platform who essentially invited those, plat- those influencers themselves to the Aspire IQ platform. So it's been a really oh, great way smart. of feeding a marketplace where, um, you know, when it in school, they teach you about like, when you start a marketplace, you have to kind of create standalone value for like one of the sides. And that was kind of our way yeah. of creating standalone value for the brand so that they would essentially attract uh, the influencers to the platform because we just didn't have them. <laughs> so let's talk about the early days a little bit. So I saw that you had worked at Pocket Gem and I think it said you led a very large team who was mostly accountable for like 80 million in annual revenue. So I want to hear a bit about your background and what you did at Pocket Gem that maybe helped influence Aspire IQ. Yeah. Um, so I, I started my career in finance actually before business school, which was really um, disappointing for my dad because my dad was a computer science <laughs> professor. So I, I, I didn't get into uh, technology immediately the way that, <laughs> that he wanted. But yeah, after business school, I went to uh, Pocket Gem's yeah, started as a product manager, uh, built a couple of games there, there, Pocket Gems for some background as a mobile app and gaming company. And really, was it is an incredible experience because gaming, you know, especially back then, I mean, you think about like, that was this was pre-Zynga IPO and all the, like the, the kind of the mm-hmm. rise of mobile gaming and everything was extremely data-driven and, and fast-paced. And it was a great environment to learn about how to build products that can grow and scale uh, really quickly. But I think the biggest thing it taught me was essentially how much mobile and social were going to change the world and pretty much change the world so much more than I had ever conceptualized, I think, before joining in almost a similar way to, you know, the, with the way the internet changed everything in the, in the late 90s. And it's because of the fact that we have this supercomputer in our pockets that's like a high definition video camera that makes any of this stuff possible. And I think as we were building games there, as we we're building apps, as we were doing user acquisition, I, I could tell by, based on kind of the, the things that were working and the channels that were working for, for our own growth that, uh, you know, all this was happening here organically. And when you looked at social media, everyone can create this amazing content that's just as relevant and meaningful as what's done in, you know, studio. And it's completely democratize giving a voice to anybody with a mobile phone and social media. So I kind of wanted to work on something following that, that could kind of take advantage of the, or basically capitalize on the fact that the world is essentially changing from what I call companies to people. Because when you open your phone, you look at most content nowadays, chances are it's something that a regular person made. It's not a company. Um, and it was kind of obvious, you know, at the time uh, to, to a lot of us that were founding the company that people were going to be at the center of how these businesses or brands were built. Like we, we, that's, that's what we we're focused on doing. And we, you know, we didn't have it all figured out in terms of what we would do or the product we would build. Um, we kind of started with social media influencers and went from there, but we just knew it was around this idea that, you know, brands and building a brand, building a marketing strategy needed to be much more people oriented and around this idea that mobile and social were going to change the world. When you launched into Aspire IQ, what were some maybe hiccups or missteps that you guys made in the beginning when trying to figure out this marketplace and building the platform? Anything happened there of note? You know, it was, it was, it was for people who didn't come from the marketing industry and were trying to get in, which I think I, when I give people advice, people always ask me like, Hey, are you going to, should I start this company? I really want to do a startup. And a lot of times the advice I give is, 
you know, look, if, if this is something you have to do, it, it shouldn't matter what I say <laughs> that you're going to do it. Yep. And, and I think it was this really interesting thing where we all had this intense belief that this was going to be a thing and this would work, even though none of us had come from the industry. So I think because none of us had come from the industry, that really put us at this disadvantage for who to talk to. Like um, we, were, we were really scrapping trying to find our first sales and talk to any e-commerce brands that would listen to us, talk to any brands that would listen to us. And it was such early days that, you know, we couldn't even charge any money for the product we made. We, we built this product in about a year and we basically had to give it away for free because people just didn't value it. They didn't understand why they should pay a platform uh, for influencer marketing. And I think we, we almost had, we actually had to create the, it was really funny in our, in our first outreaches to influencers, even we were trying to, we were trying to scrape together you know, these first influencer campaigns where we had to pretend that we were the platform, but actually underneath it was just the four of us trying to like run and like matchmake with different, with different influencers. But we were saying like, (laughs) yeah, but we were, we were saying like, oh yeah, there's something really like technological going on under the hood. Don't worry, you know, to the brands, but it was actually just us trying to like run to different influencers saying, Hey, like, can you, can you please join this campaign? We actually had to like, uh, we had to use a, we had to use a pseudonym actually, uh, cause it was, cause nobody would respond to our emails among influencers. They didn't believe that we were a real company. Um, so we had to use like pseudonames of, of people that sounded more, more legitimate um, to, to, to make sure these influencers would respond to us. I mean, again, like not only were brands not really doing a lot of influencer marketing, but the influencers themselves weren't doing a lot of quote unquote influencer marketing among sponsorship opportunities. So this wasn't as much of a business for them where they were ready and set up to kind of take a lot of these inbound requests. So that in the early days, that matchmaking process, like you said, is, was, was quite difficult. <laughs> of course, nowadays yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like a, it's almost like a machine where, you know, everybody, you know, if you have like 5,000 followers, you might even have a manager at this point. So yeah, in those early days, it was, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of talking on the phone to explain who we were and what we were trying to do. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's great. I mean, I think that also is such an advantage though when you don't come from the industry. I mean, it reminds me of like us building up this media company, like none of us really knew what we were doing in the early days. But from like your perspective, I could see a lot of people thinking about building an influencer company and being like, I need a partner with Hollywood. I need to go to CAA. Like there's a certain way things are done around here. And I think that's actually a huge advantage when you don't really know what you don't know and you just move forward and figure it out and maybe do it differently. Yeah, and, and I think that that, that definitely helped us, I would say, in the, in the later stages of the company, because by the time, like I had said, in 2016, 2017, when this took off as an industry, uh, we were one of the few companies that had built this as a true software platform, because all of us came from technology. So how were we going to win? We weren't going to win because, again, we were connected to the right people. And so we were just heads down, really building as much of the product we could essentially understand based on our own running of these campaigns. And so when the industry took off, we had kind of assembled this immense product advantage uh, versus a lot of our competitors that were essentially glorified agencies. Like back then, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of companies were effectively kind of because you might come from an agency. So you think that an agency is the way to solve this problem, this matchmaking problem. But what we saw was something much more nuanced, which was, okay, after you've solved the matchmaking problem, what are you going to do with these influencers and how are you going to make this a scalable program that will last the test of time? And all those things were built into essentially how do you create a, almost like a CRM workflow with analytics and all the different automation that we built into it that would be relevant, frankly, for people that weren't, uh, weren't really doing anything back when we first started. So 
we were lucky that we almost, we were basically lucky that we survived the first few years with almost like making no money that we could make it to the maturity of the industry when our product became more relevant. Yeah, that's good. Cause some people are a little too far ahead and you guys were yeah. ahead, but you ended up making it work, which is awesome. Yeah, so absolutely. Now that we're talking a little bit about the future, I want to head into the future. What do you think the future of influencers looks like maybe in like five to 10 years? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, like I said, I, I think influencer marketing is going to keep diversifying to, you know, just not people who necessarily have social media following it. I think it's going to be around who is influential for your brand specifically. And again, it could be, you know, it could be professionals. It could be experts, could be customers. I think a lot of, a lot of the brands we talk to that are on the bleeding edge, like a Glossier, for example, is like the gold standard, I would say, of this, which is, is one of our favorite partner customers. And they've figured out, I think, first that, you know, it doesn't really matter if you have this massive social, social following. They've built this community of fans, employees, even like healthcare workers, things like that. Um, and regardless of who you are, they do an incredible job of making you feel like a part of the community, probably because the brand started out of this, you know, shared love of Emily Weiss's beauty blog. You know, regardless if you have a uh, following on social media, they highlight a lot of their community members and their marketing. They give them exclusive first looks so they can give feedback and build buzz around new product launches. They take uh, an active interest in pretty much what all these different communities, how they respond to products. And that shapes a lot of the strategy that Glossier has as a brand. So I would say they're one of the first, I would say, community-led brands. And I think that's going to be pretty, I would say that that's going to be what I would say is the future of not just influencer marketing, but kind of building commerce brands in general, because, you know, what you see nowadays is there's such a, such a dependence on uh, third parties for a lot of e-commerce companies on generating leads from places like Facebook ads. That's almost becoming this like increasing tax on the cost of doing business of running e-commerce when you've built an advantage on for like a brand like Glossier, where you almost have your own channel of your community that generates all this buzz and brand awareness and referrals um, that, that becomes this competitive advantage because you can build growth without relying on third parties doing all of your lead generation. So I think that's what I'm really excited about as kind of the future of influencer marketing, but also the future of uh, kind of commerce and the way brands will start to own their own communities and their own channels. Yeah, that, that's a great answer. I mean, I think that's like the gold standard that a lot of brands probably want to figure out is like, how do you build that community that you can leverage and not always having to rely on, you know, external customer acquisition. But it'd be interesting to dive into their model of like, how did they actually build that up and build that community of fans uh, to then have that network to launch to, you know, with their products and whatnot. All right, cool. So let's, uh, with a few minutes left, let's dive into the lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to throw a question your way and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Eric? Fantastic. Ready. What's up next on your reading list? Ooh, uh, so I think that one, one book that I, that I, that I really love and, and just read is a book by Carrie Melissa Jones called Building Brand Communities. Um, she okay. goes into a lot about how you, you know, like similar to the Glossier example, you really need to kind of co-create an experience of communities with, um, you know, shared values, kind of mutual benefit, you know, how, how is your community going to interact with you as a brand? I, I, I love that book. We, we actually send it to, I think, all of our customers. Oh, nice. I'll have to check that out. That sounds like a good one. What is the best piece of advice you ever received? Yeah, I think the best advice I ever received was either from like a personal or professional level, 
are you, are you growing as a person? As you, are you scaling? Are you developing new skills? And, you know, I, I give that advice either to, you know, employees at the company or people who are asking you for advice. And a lot of it has to do with just kind of uh, acceleration in, 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 in any way that kind of makes sense or is meaningful to you. I love that. That is good. What's up next on your Netflix queue? What are you enjoying these days? Oh, wow. Netflix. I, uh, so we just started, I, I just started watching Killing Eve. I think it's an older show. Okay. Is it good? Yeah. I, I love that show. I, I, I don't know if I'm as big of a fan of Sandra Oh, but it's, it's a BB, BBC show and I love all, pretty much all BBC shows. Okay. I'll have to check that out. I have not even heard of that one. What do you wish you understood better right now? Like it could be a trend. It could be a piece of tech, anything. I think I, I think the thing I wish I understood better is how uh, Silicon Valley works. Um, I think mm-hmm. we've. <laughs> what's funny is we've never been kind of the favored child, I would say, of the tech industry here, and in terms of like raising money and things like that. Marketing has never been the the sexy object uh, the way you know crypto and those things were. So I think I, I think I wish I understood um, the way VCs thought better. All right, Eric. Well, this has been a really fun interview. Where can people find out more about you and Aspire IQ? Yeah, so definitely you can check out AspireIQ.com slash up next. And that's the URL. We've got some interesting reading there. We've definitely got a, a case study on Purple Mattress and a bunch of other cool stuff to read. Oh, nice. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining. We will have to have you back for a round two, maybe even in person in the studio in the future. Hopefully, hopefully the world works out that way. Thank you so much, Stephanie. It was great to, it was great to be on. Fun time. listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.